I invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We are continuing in our sermon series on the book of Genesis, looking at Genesis 11, verses 1 to 9 for our time together this morning. A couple of weeks ago, we finished off looking at the, uh, the table of nations. And here we come to uh, a rather familiar story. Uh, follow along with me as I read, beginning in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord there confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. The story of the Tower of Babel is one that is probably familiar to most of us. Uh, Even if you didn't grow up in the church, uh, there's a good chance uh, that you've heard something about the Tower of Babel. Uh, It's a pretty straightforward story. Uh, Humanity comes together to build a city and a tower, which the Lord doesn't like. So he mixes up their language and scatters them across the earth. But as we've seen throughout our study of Genesis... Uh, there is more to this story than meets the eye, though it is seems pretty straightforward. There are a lot of uh, subtleties in here that we'll be focusing our attention on. And so as we look at this passage, I want to draw our attention to uh, two specific things. It, the, the passage really, it, it divides relatively easily into two parts. Uh, from verses 1 to 4, we see man's ascension to God. See man's ascension to God. And from verses 5 to 9, we see God's condescension to man. See God's condescension to man. So that's going to be our roadmap for our time together this morning. And so the first thing we see is man's ascension to God. Man's ascension to God. Uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, uh, provides the setting for the biblical narrative in verse 1, 
Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. Right Now, we need to remember that Moses is saying this. He's writing this. He's, he's relaying this to a people who had experience with international languages. Right, So the Israelites had just spent 400 years in Egypt. And they were also about to enter into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where there would be nations all around them with different languages. And so Moses is telling them that the world at one time didn't have many languages like we do now. In the beginning, there was one language that was going to share how this played out. Uh, This one language allowed for perfect communication and cooperation. As we see in verse 2, we read that together, the people migrated from the east, or it could be translated, they moved eastward, where they found a plain, the land of Shinar, and they settled there. All right, now whenever the east, quote-unquote, the east is mentioned, it should draw our attention to other places in Genesis where we've encountered the east. All right, so... For example, after Adam and Eve sinned, Genesis 3 verse 24 says that the Lord God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And in Genesis 4 verse 16, it says that Cain, when he went away from the presence of the Lord, he settled in the land of Nod, which was where? East of Eden. Later in in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham and Lot are going to go their separate ways and Lot is going to go where? He's going to go to the east, towards Sodom and Gomorrah. So in Genesis, whenever people moved eastward or whenever they settled in the east, uh, they are typically leaving the presence of the Lord and moving out from under the blessing of God. All right, so whenever we hear the east mentioned, or people moving in that direction, they're typically leaving the presence of the Lord and moving out from under the blessing of God. We'll see this more as we move through the book of Genesis. As we see humanity migrating from the east, we should be asking ourselves, what is humanity up to now? What is humanity up to now? And we see what humanity is up to in verse 3. They say to one another, come, let us build bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Uh, Again, the Israelites hearing this story would have been very familiar with these building supplies. When they were slaves in Egypt, they were tasked with building cities using mortar and brick. So here's where this technology was invented. Except by the time, you know, this information or this story is being relayed to the Israelites, uh, they, they already had things like stone and, and mortar. So all of this was like primeval technology. It's, it's like uh, going from tractors 100 years ago to tractors nowadays, right? And even better technology. But what do they do with this new technology? Look at verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top 
in the heavens and let us make for ourselves, make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, I just want to point out, it is not that building a city and a tower is wrong in and of itself. One can build cities and one can build towers to the glory of God. But when you break down each element of their plan, you you begin to see why it was wrong for them to build a city and a tower. There are a few things. First, in desiring to build a city, they are following the lead of Cain, the offspring of the serpent who, guess what, left the presence of the Lord, right? And he moved out from under the blessing of God. And what did he do? The first thing he does is he builds a city, naming it after his son. And so instead of relying on God for his protection, because remember, Cain had a, a mark of protection by God, but instead of relying on God for his protection, Cain sought to build his own security in the form of a city, which is exactly what humanity has again done here. They're building their own security. They're building their own protection. Uh, Secondly, the city was to have a high tower that could be seen for miles and miles so that anyone who wandered away from the city would not be scattered, but that they... They would always be able to find their way back to the city. The intention was for them to stay close to home. Don't stray off too far. You got everything you need right here. And then third, this was no ordinary tower, was it? It was a tower with its top in the heavens, or it was supposed to be supposed to have its top in the heavens. It was to be a tower that would link heaven and earth. Uh, Commentators understand uh, the tower to be that of a ziggurat, uh, which is similar to what uh, archaeologists have discovered in Mesopotamia. Uh, A ziggurat was a uh, pyramid with a stairway on its side, either for man to ascend to God or for God to ascend to man. Either way, the goal of the Tower of Babel was to be on the same level as God. It was to be on the same level as God. Uh, Psalm 115 verse 16 says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. However, mankind would not be content with earth. No, they wanted heaven as well. Just as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden took of the forbidden fruit in order to become like God in deciding for themselves what is good and what is evil, humanity here wanted to become like God in residing in both heaven and earth. They thought that they could achieve this by their own way, their own methods. And it's here where Moses records for us the twofold motivation of the builders. Why are they doing this? Well, first, they wish to build this city and its huge tower in order to make a name for themselves. In other words, they lusted after power and fame and renown and independence. They they wanted to elevate themselves to God's level and even dispossess God from his throne. The interesting thing is, 
the Tower of Babel is not an isolated incident. It's not like this is the only time we see this thing happen in Scripture. Centuries after this, King Nebuchadnezzar walked on the roof of his royal palace, the royal palace of Babylon, and what did he say? Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as, my, as a holy residence and for the glory of my majesty? <laughs> Centuries after that, uh, as King Herod, arrayed in royal robes, addressed his people, they shouted, The voice of a god and not of a man. Well, we know how this worked out for them. King Nebuchadnezzar would, uh, would become a beast of the field for a time. And King Herod would be eaten by worms and would die. But what this reveals to us is that we are all prone to want to be great. We are all prone to want to make a name for ourselves. We are all prone to rebel against the king of the universe and seek autonomy for ourselves. This isn't just a problem that some people have. This is a problem that all of us have. We all have Babylonian hearts that seek to dispossess God and to put ourselves on the throne. And what is astounding about this is that God in his grace makes a name for his people. In the very next chapter, God promises Abram, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. Genesis 12 verse 2. Uh, Later, God makes this promise to David. I will make for you a great nation. Name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, 2 Samuel 7, verse 9. According to the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, And Jesus, in Revelation 3, verse 12, promises to write on his people the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Right? And so we see that it is God's desire to make a name for his people. Yet at Babel, mankind desired to make a name for themselves. In essence, they were subverting God's sovereignty and they were grasping for their own sovereignty. That's their their first motivation. They want to make a name for themselves. Their second motivation for building the city and, and this tower even more clearly shows their defiance of God. They say that they wish to undertake this huge building project lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you've been following our study of of Genesis, then you know that it was the plan of God from the beginning that human beings would spread across the earth after creating human beings in his image. Genesis 1 verse 28 says that God 
blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God desired his image bearers to represent him in the whole world. They were to spread God's kingdom far and wide. Even after the flood, right? We again read that God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 9 verse 1. It is always the plan of God to spread across the whole earth. Yet at Babel, humanity was disobeying God's creation designed to fill the earth. Instead, they wanted to build their own security. They wanted to seek salvation in their unity. Being one people with one language, their defiance threatened God's plan to restore his kingdom on the earth. And so, in the first place, we see man's ascension to God, or, or at least man's attempt to ascend to God. Because the second thing we see in our text is God's condescension to man. We see God's condescension to man. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I mentioned this literary technique called a chiasm, where uh, the first part of the story is reflected in reverse order in the second part of the story, and, and how the, the middle part of the story is, is where we get the point of the story. So it's, it's like a, a sandwich, right? With you got two pieces of bread and you got the meat in the middle. That's a chiasm. And that's what we see happening here in, in Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. And if that's confusing to you, I've included it in the back of your bulletin. You see it there. Uh, verse 1, uh, the whole earth had one language. Verse 9, the Lord confused the language of all the earth. So right, they had one language and the Lord confused their language. Uh, verse 2, the people settled in the land of Shinar. Verse 8, the Lord dispersed them over all the earth, right? So they wanted to settle. God wanted to scatter. Verse 3, they say, come let us make bricks. Verse 7, God says, come let us go down and confuse their language. Verse 4, they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower, right? They, they think that they can come together as one people and be great on the earth. Well, verse 6, God says, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Right, so you see the, the mirrored image all throughout, and this brings us to the middle of the chiasm, the thematic center of the story in verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. All right, so this is the the hinge of the Babel story. Uh, we see that the Lord is quick to respond to human rebellion, isn't he? The, the response is similar to God's response to the threat to his kingdom uh, before the flood there in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, where God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And we saw God's response Quick response there. Now, before we think that the Lord is an erratic 
and vindictive deity who is concerned that his creation is going to steal his glory away from him, look at how the text portrays God, right? So it says that the Lord had to come down from his heavenly throne to see this city and its tower whose top was supposedly in the heavens. So this isn't a statement about the smallness of God. This is a statement about the smallness of man. It's mocking mankind's desire for greatness. The Lord has to come down just to see it. In Isaiah 40, verses 21 to 23, the prophet Isaiah writes, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in? Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Rhetorical question. It's God. It's God. The picture here is the king of the universe coming down from his throne and getting on his hands and his knees to see what humanity has built. It's like whenever my children create something out of Lego on the floor and they, they ask me to come down and see it. I have to, I have to get down physically and, and see the little thing that they have built that they're so proud in, that I'm proud of that they built. But certainly the, the psalmist had Babel in mind when he penned these words from Psalm 2, verses 1 to 4. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. All right, now, the the Lord is a good father to his children, right? If our work, however imperfect, is done to the glory of God, he looks upon it and he smiles. But if our work is done with a hint of, of pride and arrogance where we think that we have accomplished something worthy of greatness, worthy of making a name for ourselves, it will be pathetic in the eyes of God. It doesn't matter how grand the accomplishment. We can, we can be the prime minister of Canada. We can win the Nobel Prize. We can build skyscrapers. We can have the best test scores. We can be the 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 fastest, the brightest, the most beautiful, the most athletic, if our accomplishments are done with a heart of pride, the Lord will not be impressed. Make no mistake, God can topple the best laid plans of mice and men. He is not concerned that he's going to lose his throne to his creatures because he has to condescend just to see it. And that's the beauty of this text, isn't it? You know, God is not required to come down from his throne. 
He's not required to take a closer look at what humanity is building, but he does. According to the the Westminster Shorter Catechism, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. He made heaven and earth. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits enthroned in heaven, yet this God condescends. God who is superior to us, in whom we live and move and have our being, to whom the nations of the earth are like a drop in a bucket, is a condescending God. And this is good news for us. Because we we see his condescension here in our text. But the greatest and most wonderful example of God's condescension is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. There, God became man and took on flesh. The creator became a creature. The one who hung the stars in the sky lay helpless in a manger. The one who is so big and so strong and so mighty became so tiny, so weak, and so powerless. The the Puritan preacher Thomas Watson put it movingly in his book, A Body of Divinity. He was poor that he might make us rich. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we may lay in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. This, this is our condescending God. He left his heavenly throne to rescue sinful humanity from their destruction. Oh, he is so glorious. And thus we see it is because of his faithfulness and his grace that God will intervene and foil the foolish plans of those attaining their own salvation. We need a God who bought salvation for us. And so how will God do this? Well, in verse 6, the Lord says, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. And so in in, in this verse, the Lord expresses two concerns. The first concern is that they are one people and that they have one language. Basically reiterating what we know about them in verse 1. But here we see that they are united in their defiance against God. They are one in their rebellion against the king of the universe. There is no no righteous Noah among them this time. And this leads to the Lord's second concern. This is only the beginning of what they will do. If they're successful in defying God now, then who knows what they will propose next? As one commentator put it, If the whole human race remained united in the proud attempt to take its destiny into its own hands 
and by its man-centered efforts to seize the reins of history, there would be no limit to its unrestrained rebellion against God. The kingdom of man would displace and exclude the kingdom of God. And then, and then where would we be? And so it's for the sake of his kingdom, the Lord must intervene. Twice the people have said, come let us make bricks and come let us build ourselves a city and a tower. Well, now the Lord responds with his own come let us statement in verse 7. Come let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Again, Moses emphasizes that our condescending God had to come down to, to oppose this haughty people. The Lord counters this threat to his kingdom by confusing their language so that they can no longer understand one another. The single language had made, made their, their defiant unity possible. Well, by confusing their language, the Lord shatters this defiant unity. The Lord shatters Babel, the city of man in order to begin his kingdom anew with Abraham and then with Israel and then later with the church. In verse 8, Moses relates the outcome of this narrative. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Uh, the reason for building the city and the, and the tower in the first place was because they didn't want to be dispersed over the whole earth. Well, the result of the Lord's actions was precisely what they feared. The Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth. They, they had tried to disobey God's will to fill the earth, but in spite of their disobedience, the Lord accomplished his will. Verse 9 concludes the narrative. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. God shatters defiant and self-reliant humanity. He scatters them across the whole earth. Now, ironically, those who wanted to make a name for themselves do get a name. <laughs> it's, uh, it's Babel. Except they had wanted to make a name for themselves by settling down in their city. But this... This name, Babel, which means confusion, it actually describes their scattering. And so they, they do get a name, but it's not the name that they were expecting to receive. God scatters the defiant and the self-reliant in order to restore his kingdom on the earth. What a message of hope this would have been for the, the people of Israel hearing this for the first time. Obviously, they knew their history, but, but here they were receiving it. All at once. What a message of hope this would have been as they were about to enter the land of Canaan with cities great and fortified up to heaven. Deuteronomy 1 verse 21 says, Nevertheless, these cities, however great, would fall before the judgment of God. I mean, Jericho is going to be an example of that in the beginning part of Joshua. And what a message of hope this would have been for the exiles in Babylon. Here was a message of God coming down from his throne in heaven to see this great city, right? And Babylon is described as being a great city that humans had built. Yet how small it was compared to the king of the universe. 
He scouted the inhabitants of Babel in order to spread his kingdom over all the earth. Well, this same condescending God could also shatter this Babylon that had enslaved Israel. And God could restore his people to the promised land once again. It's a message of hope. It's it's hope as described in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51 verse 53. Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from against her, declares the Lord. And of course, the Babel narrative gives hope to the church. Throughout scripture, uh, uh, Babel or, or Babylon is, is a symbol of human rebellion against God's designs. It is mankind's attempt to leave the presence of the Lord and, and move out from under the blessing of God. It is anyone or anything that sets themselves up against God and against the people of God. And so in this sense, Babylon is, is any world leader or nation that wants to make a name for themselves and that seeks to dispossess God from his heavenly throne. It's ISIS and all those who persecute the church of Jesus Christ. It's the sexual revolution and all those who seek to redefine gender and marriage. It's Planned Parenthood and every organization that promotes the killing of innocent human beings. It's every institution that promotes racial supremacy. And in Revelation chapter 18, verses 2 to 3, the Apostle John writes, Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Yet she will fall. As later on in Revelation 19 says, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. A sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more, and a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more, and the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more, and the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more, for your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Babel, Babylon, will ultimately fall. But all is not lost for them. Because God scatters the inhabitants of Babel in order to restore his kingdom on the earth. We see after this, God is going to call Abram from among a family of idol worshipers, right? Ironically enough, to continue the line of the offspring of the woman. And God is going to say to Abram, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the nations shall be blessed. And God's promise of blessing the nations would be initially fulfilled at Pentecost. Right? When the risen Lord Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit. 
In Acts chapter 2, Luke reports that Jesus' followers, they were, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, speak in other languages. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, the mighty works of God. Right? This is exactly what the prophet Zephaniah looked forward to. He looked forward to the day when the nations would be restored to pure speech. And when those who had been scattered would be brought near to God. Zephaniah 3 verses 9 to 11 says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve the Lord with one accord. For beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, in other words, sing Babel, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. In other words, there's hope for them if they repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see at Pentecost, God enabled people to hear this message. They were able to hear each other once again, which resulted in an even greater unity than Babel could have ever imagined. Because Pentecost reversed the judgment of Babel. Not in the sense that, that all languages were removed, that we, we became one language again, but in the sense that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed to every people of every language so that people from every nation could hear and understand and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, so glorious. So glorious. Right, It's not a coincidence that the Bible ends in a city. It ends in a city, the New Jerusalem. In contrast to Babel, which was built by man, the New Jerusalem is built by God. In contrast to Babel, which represents the kingdoms of the world, the New Jerusalem represents the kingdom of God. In contrast to Babel, which represents human autonomy and might, the New Jerusalem represents the city where people will rely on God for security and seek to obey his will. The New Jerusalem is the city that Babel was supposed to be, but had failed to be. It was supposed to be the place where people would go out and come in and go out and come in and, and from there spread across the earth, but it failed in its purposes. And thus, in Revelation 21, we see this glorious city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And Revelation 21 says, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. In other words, the new Jerusalem is where our hope lies. You see, the church today, we, we live in, in the time between the, the already and the not yet. We live 
The time between the initial fulfillment of, of God's promise of blessing the nations and its final fulfillment of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. And unfortunately, it's this age that we live in is an age of fear where people are afraid of many, many things. And what we do is we try to build our own security. We try to build our own protection. We try to build our own towers to save us. Now, maybe our our tower is, is works-based salvation and trying to, to earn our way to God. Um, maybe our tower is our job or our spouse or our children or our stuff, things that we put our hope in. Maybe it's our uh, affiliation with a certain political party. Right? Maybe it's, it's more spiritual in nature where, where we think that uh, reading our Bibles or going to church or, or praying We'll, we'll bring God to, to our level so that we can manipulate God into doing what we want him to do. But what, what towers have we built that we're trusting in for security? Make no mistake, God will not be mocked. The story of Babel tells us that our human ingenuity and mightiest accomplishments mean Little in the eyes of God if they counter his purposes. Our ultimate security lies not in human towers. Our security lies in our condescending God who alone is able to break down kingdoms that oppose his redemptive purposes for his world and for his people. And who alone is able to bring his kingdom on the earth. And who alone is redeeming a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, so that one day his redeemed people will stand together before his glorious throne and praise him for his salvation in every single language of the earth. And church is going to be glorious. That is where our hope lies. And so, so we must abandon Babel with all of its proud, God-defying ways. We must abandon our Babylonian hearts, search for security in the city of man. There, there is no political philosophy. There's no economic theory, no technology, no psychology, no, no religious activity that can give us the autonomy and security we long for. Our, our only hope, our only hope is to bow our knee at the name of Jesus, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Only then will we enter the city of God, the city that we were always intended to dwell in. And there we will forever be with our Savior and our King. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for your great mercy that we who were scattered, who were far from your promises, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God, we pray, uh, do a work in us, in our land, that you might bring your scattered people into your church to worship you as king. 
And when we are tempted to grasp at the glory that is due to you alone, we pray that you would remind us of the foolishness of trusting in that which will one day pass away. And that you would help us to trust in you. And in your wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. We give you all glory and honor and praise for the sake of Christ, our Savior and our King. Amen.